0: hey welcome to today's episode sorry there's been a bit of a delay in uh, releasing podcasts recently we've been on holiday in amsterdam so also shout outs to everyone that recommended winkle 43 for apple pie that was definitely the best apple pie i've ever had and a highlight of the holiday so hugely appreciated i'm also aware that loads of you have sent me tons of emails to to do a QA episode. So I'm not sure if I'm going to break that into two episodes or just the one, uh, maybe a longer podcast because I've got so many emails to respond to and I'm fully aware that I haven't sent you a reply back. Um, I'm meaning to kind of get around to all of this kind of stuff. So yeah, at some point I will, I will sift through those and, and answer those. But today, I'm talking to Shirag Patel. Shirak is the creator of The Bucket Game for Husbandry Training. He's a behavior consultant for pets, zoos, and laboratory animals, and was an expert on the BBC show Nightmare Pets SOS. Uh, really, I was putting a bio together for uh, Shirak for today's episode, and honestly, there isn't a lot he hasn't done. It's, he's got an incredible uh, resume, and I know that this is probably the most requested interview i've ever done you know there was so many of you on the facebook group asking for uh, me to do this episode with Shirak. so i'm glad that we've recorded it we've got it done and i hope you enjoy it so let's get into it hello and welcome to dog talk with me your host nick benger the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world (laughs) hey shirag welcome to the show
1: hi thanks for having me
0: thanks so much for coming on there was a lot of requests from people to have you on the podcast i'm so glad that we managed to figure it out
1: i'm I'm looking forward to um sort of having a chat with you it should be great
0: i would really like to start out by talking about your background because i know it's you know, I found it hugely inspirational reading about it. I know you come from a family of first generation immigrants and that there was a, there was pressure on you to become a doctor or a lawyer. So how did you handle that?
1: Well, I think um, I was quite lucky in terms of um, we had animals in the family, um, usually dogs as sort of guard dogs or um, sort of they went to the family business and they were like a, a protection dog um and um I was fascinated by animals right from an early age and um sort of reading books uh, watching tv programs um and kind of talking about them all the time so I think my family got used to very quickly that animals were going to be a big part of my life and the pressure wasn't actually that bad um especially because originally I thought um I'm going to go into a veterinary medicine field and um it was kind of an equivalent to going into a medical field so I think um yeah the pressure wasn't bad because of that and then um i think um when things kind of changed and it became more about training and behavior i don't actually know if my family really understand what i do now anyway um but (laughs) um, yeah so um i have have to say um they're amazing and um i am so thankful to my family and my parents and uh, for the support that they give me and they've given me um since I was a child, I used to want to do work experience at veterinary practices. So from like age of 13, I started with Duke of Ed. Edinburgh, um, and started going to vet practices and doing sort of, uh, volunteering and work experience. And um, my mom used to drive me every single time I wanted to go and things like that. And even now, um, I have, uh, pet sitters on, um, on call. And so my parents are really happy to look after my pets when I'm away. And because of my travel schedule, um, that makes a huge difference as well. So I'm really grateful to them for all of their support and actually, um, how helpful they are.
0: When did you start to realize that you wanted to go into kind of training and behavior as opposed to, to veterinary stuff?
1: Well, I got a, um, a one of our German shepherds that we got. Um, so one of the first German shepherds I remember us having, uh, Max, um, I remember him arriving at home when he was sort of eight weeks old, um, initially actually was scared of him, even though I was excited he wasn't going to be coming to live with us. Um, and. Uh, when he was almost like a dog who had a halo on his head right from the moment go, um, this German Shepherd, he could walk down the street without a collar lead, pretty much essentially anything. And he'd, um, sit in the van that we had in front of the driveway, um, with the doors open <coughs> for quite a large part of the day. Sorry. <coughs> And, um, when we got, um, sadly he passed away. And, uh, when we got our next German shepherd who was slightly older, uh, seven months from a kennel, uh, walking him down the street, the first couple of weeks we had him, he grabbed hold of a guy's arm and, uh, wouldn't let go. And um, that happened twice. And the guy had a hoodie on or a backpack um, and he hadn't had much interaction and reinforcement history with people with hoodies and things like that. And so working with him really got me interested in training uh, probably about um, 17, 18 years ago.
0: Your second German Shepherd, Kane, he was actually accepted by the police, wasn't he? That was a bit of a, uh, a thing.
1: Yeah so we nearly rehomed him to the police and he actually um he actually passed um their um assessment and um we had to kind of uh be a bit naughty but uh, we essentially um, <laughs> got, um realized that actually we didn't want to give him away even though he had passed and they kind of um ask you to sign things and at the beginning saying, um, if they pass, then essentially they, they've gone to becoming a police dog and you can't really get them back once you sign them over. But we were lucky and we got him back. And I have to say he was an incredible dog and he taught me so much. And if it wasn't for him, um, I probably wouldn't be doing what I do uh, today.
0: So what kind of training were you doing originally with him? What was your kind of introduction to training?
1: Um, so we started off with, um, A lot of um, punishment-based training. Um, So we tried a few uh, sort of seeing a behaviorist um, and um, they were sort of a positive reinforcement-based behaviorist. I remember um, them saying we don't allow choke chains and... um, essentially what we did was we took the choke chain off before we went to the consult and as soon as we came out the consult the choke chain went back on um and um they'd recommended like using a head halter um and when we put the head halter on and he hated it um so he was scratching at it um his nose was sort of slightly grazed because he'd been rubbing against the floor during the consultation and um So we came out going, oh, my God, that looks so cruel. Um, And his choke chain went back on. um, And we found an ex-police training school where, well, a training school uh, for the public where these officers who had retired from uh, dog, uh, as being dog handlers, uh, were running training classes. And so my first kind of introduction was um, choke chain, um, how to use one, um, holding your knee up when they jump up, stepping on their back feet, um, those kinds of things.
0: When did you start having more success with him?
1: Um, so initially I thought I, we were having success because, um, when he's in pain and he can't really prove anybody choke, ch- use a choke chain and, um, I almost say right, but right inverted commas, right way, um, and, um, it causes a lot of discomfort. You see a lot of behavior change happen very quickly. And so you see a dog who, um, isn't pulling as much, or you see a dog who doesn't lunge at people, but then knowing what I know now, um, essentially, you see, it, it, we're basically creating a, a silent weapon and you're punishing a lot of the warning behaviors. So, um, growling and things like that disappear, but essentially the dog will still bite, um, given the opportunity. Um, and also you start to learn about the body language and actually the ears pinned back, the tail tucked or tail down, um, and also, um, the potential pain and discomfort that we're causing. And so we saw, um, a lot of improvement early on or what we'd think of as improvement. But now looking back on it, it wasn't really improvement, but a lot of suppression of his behavior. Um, and it was actually, um, I kind of prescribed to the whole uh, dominance idea and theory as well at the time. And then um, I went to a talk by Dr. Ian Dunbar. He was giving us the first wagon bone dog show that Beverly Cuddy who's the editor of dogs today organized. And she had a, um, a marquee set up in the field, and it was called the Think Shrink Tank. And she had all these people um, uh, from uh, Sarah Whitehead to Peter Neville, Roger Mugford, um, and the one of the last speakers was Ian Dunbar, and I'd never heard of him. And I sat there, I got there in the morning, and um, I was listening to all these people. And I sat there for all the talks, and um, Ian came on, and he started talking, and suddenly um, – like the other speakers were amazing, but, um, when Ian spoke, it kind of, uh, caught my attention and had me almost mesmerized and almost I was like, wow, well, that's so obvious when he says that. Um, and so he was actually a big turning point in, uh, sort of me rethinking how I interact and with my dog and also training.
0: Yeah. I read that you. You sat there for nine hours. That's pretty incredible.
1: (laughs) However long it was the whole day. um, I got there in the morning, started the first talk. And I think it was actually Sarah's talk, Sarah Whitehead, uh, who, again, I think is a phenomenal and a uh, Uh behaviourist, an amazing person. Um, And um, I remember her her doing a talk. And she had a little dog she did a demo with. I think it was on clicker training. Um, And, um, yeah, from the last talk that day, who was Ian um so you know it's an experience that um i'll never forget
0: yeah it's funny you should bring him up because i was thinking of him when you were describing uh your german shepherd Kane. because one of the things that ian always says is you're taking the ticker off the time bomb right when you use punishment with those behaviors that lead up to bites
1: exactly um and um definitely and almost um you are creating almost potentially a ticking time bomb uh so yeah and all the things that we know now as well in terms of um, sort of how um, how much more dangerous it could create the situation and make the situation into. Uh, so, yeah, it makes sense initially. You think of it as um, if you haven't had such training or if you haven't had the experience I've had since, you kind of go, well, it makes it sounds like it's common sense. If the dog growls, you tell them off and they won't growl. But actually, if we really look at it from a scientific point of view, start to realize actually if you punish growling you're kind of removing that and it's less likely to happen but what is a growling functioning uh for and potentially if it's functioning for um if it's a way for the dog to say back away or don't do that i'm going to bite then essentially you're taking the the voice away from the dog and so you "You know the dog is more likely to bite
0: one of the questions that i get asked all of the time is how do you find someone to mentor you in becoming a dog trainer and you seem to have been extremely successful in that because I know that you managed you know you're a young young guy and you managed to convince were you about 16 then was that right uh, yeah maybe maybe younger and you managed to convince Ian to to have you over and and mentor you in America how, how did you do that
1: well honestly I didn't I didn't actually take much um, in, <laughs> um you just I just I was at that um I went to so Um, After his talk, um, he had some leaflets about um, the talk he was coming back and doing um, a week, a long weekend. And um, I also bought some of his books and started reading uh, how to teach an old dog, new, um, a new dog, old trick, sorry. (laughs) And um, I started reading that book, and at the back of that book, um, there were some other books that he kind of public um, he'd worked on publishing, so Gene Donaldson's Culture Clash." And it just happens that year or the following year he, he was going to come back with Gene, um, and they were going to do uh, separate seminars, and they were going to do a day together too. And um, I just went to those seminars um, and the workshops, and then I remember t- um, sort of walking up to them and just saying, "Oh, this is sounds it's been amazing. I've learned so much. if ever I get the opportunity to." Uh, come over to the States. Could I come and spend some time with you or learn from you? And they both said yes. And I'm sure they just thought of it as, as like a question from some random person. It's never going to happen. Um, and then my situations changed slightly. And um, I had, uh, during the summer holidays, um, and I made a plan and I emailed them. And um, I remember writing this letter with this picture of me and Kane, going, you might remember me. This is what I look like. Uh, this is my dog, Kane." Um, and um, It just goes to show, like, the kindness and the amazingness of, uh, people out there. Um, and Ian messaged back, Gene messaged back, both of them messaged back saying, um, of course, and, um, they went out their way to organize, um, an internship at the spca san francisco spca and ian um, was phenomenal in terms of meeting up with myself and there's another japanese student i who was an amazing person that i met there and we'd he'd almost take um so go to his house and he'd sit down with us um and um talk about puppy training dog training give us homework exercises to do um and so for me it really goes to show um, the kindness and the amazingness that's, that's out there. And when you t- kind of talk about finding uh people to um, be mentors and things like that, I think um, just asking people um, as a first step, just going to people, asking them, um, you find so many people out there who are um, sort of happy to do that. And, again, that's something I try and use as a philosophy. If it's possible, um, I'll be happy to try and have people and um, learn and have students follow and things like that.
0: Was that a physical letter that you sent him or an email? Uh,
1: it was uh, an email, I think. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it was an email. What,
0: what kind of advice would you give to people then, just just to be brave and ask? Because I think that people are nervous of asking, aren't they? I guess it's, it, it, you know, how what kind of actionable advice can people take on this? Do you think that they should just shoot off emails to people that they, they kind of admire in dog training?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think, um, again, appreciating um, in terms of um, whoever you're messaging, they're going to be potentially, if they're busy or they're traveling, et cetera, it may take some time. Um, but um, e- taking the effort to go to, um, I don't know, if it's someone that runs a workshop or someone who runs a class, um, going up and visiting them and um, getting to know them on a, a sort of a, a personal level, physical level, so it's not just necessarily a letter. And it may mean traveling an hour or two uh for an evening. Um but again a lot of trainers we've had um sort of travel and come and watch a puppy class or a dog training class or concert or something and you get to know them on a different letter as opposed to just um a different level, sorry, as opposed to just receiving a letter. But yeah, if you don't ask you're never gonna be able to uh, get a, any kind of answer. And the worst that they can say is, um, no, or it's not possible at this time. Um, so, and, um, yeah, that's the worst that could happen. So definitely, um, contact people and, um, and go speak to them, uh, physically, try and uh, arrange the environment so that, um, you can go meet them, um, and chat to them. And uh, when they meet you, they're more likely to probably say yes than just, um, sort of an email or something. So, um, yeah, just go ahead and ask.
0: How did you convince your parents to let you go to America?
1: <laughs> when I look back at it now, it's a good question. When I, I, I've never actually been away by myself. I've been to America uh, probably once, I think. Uh, my gran um, took us out there. Um, I think also my parents went out there. But um, I, got, I honestly couldn't answer that for you because I look back at it now and I think, it's a bit crazy. They kind of probably didn't even like, they'd never met Ian or Jean and they didn't kind of know who I was talking about. Um, and so, and the whole situation was a little bit, um, I remember going on to Craigslist and finding um, somewhere to stay. And some lady said, Oh yeah, we've got a spare room and I couldn't really afford like a hotel or anything for nine weeks. And so she's like, I have a spare room. Um, there's no bed in there or anything. And so I took an air mattress with me um, and, um, um she said there's like she'll give me bedding and stuff and yeah literally put up her air mattress and stayed there for a number of weeks which is quite eventful but um i honestly don't know how <laughs> <Look at that laughs> now, i think <laughs> i
0: I heard that your parents thought like it was a very organized trip you're going to be staying in a hotel uh yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> and the, and that some of the people that were concerned about you because you were staying in quite like a rough area of san francisco
1: uh, yeah, so um, I remember going to um, – so one of Ian's uh, – he used to be Ian's trainer, um, one of Ian's trainers at the time. She used to be one of um, – I think she was Ian's head trainer, uh, Sandy. Um, and uh, every evening I used to go to sort of different trainers. Like, they're phenomenal. They invited me in to their classes. So I used to turn up and watch and help um, the different trainers. And um, I remember going to uh, Sandy's class, and at the end of the class she kind of said, uh, where are you heading back to? Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm heading back here, and it's all fine. I'll catch the bar, which is like their train system. And um I've done that for the last couple of nights with different things. And she was like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. We'll give you a lift. And I can kind of see her and another assistant that she had kind of discuss it between themselves. And I was like, I'm quite happy. i just get on the train and go. Um, And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. Uh, We we insist, we'll give you a lift. Otherwise, you might get shot. And I kind of (laughs) get... She's like, no, 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 I'm quite serious. I remember I was driving. She's like, do you know where you live? And I was like... Well, this is kind of the this is the address, and um, I couldn't really give you directions. Um, and we're, we're driving, and we got lost. And uh, me, being me, I was just like, "Oh, should we just open the window and ask that person to walking by?" She's like, "No, no, let's just close the window." And keep <laughs> I'm not in this neighborhood, but yeah, apparently, um, it wasn't a very great place to live, and walking um, at nighttime from the BART station to the house wasn't probably the best uh, thing that I could do. And so I remember um, them going out their way and giving me lifts back and forth, um, which was really nice of them.
0: But you you didn't feel unsafe then?
1: Uh, no, I just kind of get on with it and kind of, no, I never really felt unsafe. Do you think that that was
0: just a kind of like teenage naivety or... Most, most probably, yes. Ian Ian said about you as as seeing you you know come over here come over to america as a teenager he said that you as a teenager your natural handling skills were magical and that he and kelly both said to each other that this young man is going to go a long way
1: that's amazing that's really nice to hear um like i say it's um yeah no that's amazing it's um and i have to say like um i say i can't speak highly enough of ian and kelly um and just how generous they are with their time and um yeah, if it wasn't for them, um, they've helped me a lot in terms of the work they helped me do and learn uh, when I went out there for those nine weeks. It was incredible, and um, I'll always be thankful to them. And I think um, even now, I hear sometimes people say, um, oh, yeah, that, um, like Ian's stuff is a bit out of date or this, that, and the other. Um, but actually, I think, um, like, you hear him talk, and he's incredible at, uh, in terms of just engaging an audience. And also... Um, all the stuff that he's done for, um, dog training and puppy training, um, is incredible. And we wouldn't be doing a lot of things that we do now, I think, um, if it wasn't for, um, Ian. And, um, also, even if, it, when you hear him speak now, um, there's things that I would do differently, um, or I do differently. But, um, when you hear Ian speak, it's incredible just to focus in terms of, um, real application to pet dog training and for me uh, much of my work for many years was uh, running puppy classes working with your everyday client who isn't a trainer they just have um, they, they've got a pet um, a dog and they just want to sort out this problem and Ian is very amazing at just kind of coming back to that not getting lost in all the gadgets or things that we can do as trainers um, and get really caught up in all the technical stuff. Um, actually, when in front of us in this puppy class or in this one-to-one, what we really need to be doing is really helping um, this client and this caregiver and the dog and the situation in front of us. And the more gimmicks we add, the more complicated we make it. Um, often the clients can be least likely to succeed because we're arranging the environment for them to fail. Um, and for them, it's not that reinforcing um for, I'm speaking generally for a lot of clients. It's not reinforcing um, getting all technical and geeky and really learning all these precise skills because all they want is a quick fix at the end of the day. And so um, I think um, as pet dog trainers, it's much um, as much about working with the human caregiver as well as the dog. And again, that's something that Ian really emphasizes and um, sort of talks about. And I think it's so important. We often forget when we're working in pet dog training, uh, we see I see a lot of trainers come in and say, oh, I love puppies." or I love dogs um and actually um i'm not that i'm not great with people and it's almost uh a wrong way because um and I remember Ian saying this like you're saying um in order to be a successful puppy trainer, you could have mediocre training skills, but if you had amazing people skills, um, essentially you're going to retain the clients coming into your classes. They're going to sign up for more classes. And not only is that good for business, but essentially if they come back to classes, that's another opportunity for you to um, empower them and engage them and um, improve that relationship. And that dog's more likely to stay in the home as opposed to um, end up at a rescue center or being rehomed. And so I think um one of the big things I think we need to focus on in pet dog training, not just the dog training skills, but how we work with each other and uh, how we work with the human caregivers rather than just the dogs themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of Ian's greatest skills is the communication, you know, being able to make dog training seem very common sense to people. You know, I think that's always the feedback I get from dog owners about seeing in stuff, especially, you know, he's done Ted talks and some of his, um, his speaking stuff is always that it makes sense to them. It's. And I think that that's a breath of fresh air sometimes. Cause like you said, you know, we love dog training. So we talk about, um, all of the geeky stuff because we love that. But we, sometimes we don't have the empathy to understand that people, um, um, People struggle to follow that, right? Because this isn't their specialist subject, right? Like it's not their passion. And actually explaining it in terms that they can understand is hugely beneficial.
1: Exactly. No, I agree with you completely. And I think, like you say, uh, we have to um, adjust the conversation level, adjust the words we're using based on the individual in front of us. And we're working with one particular caregiver maybe they have gone out and read um sort of eight different books on dog training but a next caregiver again may have four children and um a parents to care for and they just need the dog to stop uh peeing and pooing in the house or barking or um lunging at other dogs um and they don't particularly need to or want to learn how to um have amazing timing with a clicker and um p- perfect food delivery and all of these other things and um we know as trainers some of these things can help speed things up but again have uh, uh, been a, a tr- um, working in a real life setting um, you can make a lot of improvement to welfare and behavior and change behavior. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be working at that micro geeky level um, to help most of the animals. And actually they'll stay in their homes. People will be much happier with the animals. Their relationship will improve. And so definitely.
0: Well, dude, you're crushing it anyway. I see you all the time doing workshops all over the world. I'm curious. So has, is that firstly, was that your intentions when you were getting into dogs? I've, I'm not, yeah, what's not your intentions, but also has it kind of lived up to your dreams of doing this stuff?
1: Oh, and, um... So was that my intention? The answer is n- uh, no. Um, in terms of life in the beginning, I've always like if I do something, I want to be the best I can be at, at it. So um, if I start something, I almost want to I go into it, and put a lot of effort into it. I want to do I want to learn from the best because I want to be the best I can in that situation and be the best that I can be given that. So that was always my aim in dog training and behaviour um, is to try and be the best. And even now, I, I constantly, I want to do um, I want to be the best that I. I can be in um, understanding this field, um, helping people, helping animals. But um, being a speaker or presenter, um, helping teach others, I never really thought about that as something I would do. And um, I made some YouTube videos, uh, which um, when I made them, um, they were like muzzle training, um, teaching a drop, a slightly different way of teaching a drop. There weren't that many videos on YouTube on teaching a dog to wear a muzzle. And I kind of made it for my clients because um, when they left the consult, giving them a uh, resource to use. And what I found was um, almost overnight or within a couple of days, loads of people were sharing it and talking about it. And so when that happened, um, a few emails came through and people were asking if I'd go and do a workshop or a seminar. And I remember um, even the first few workshops, I kind of said yes and then um, ended up going, oh my God, what am I actually going to even talk about? And why would anyone really, uh, be interested in hearing stuff from me when there's all these amazing people out there, um, who seminars I'm going to, to learn from, um, that are teaching things. And so, um, in the beginning, I was just like, I was like nervous as anything and um, almost, uh, mm. amazed or shocked at why, um, anyone would want me to stand there and say stuff. Um, but yeah, and, but, um, I'm privileged and honored to be able to let people invite me um, and feel that I have things to teach or say, which might be slightly different or beneficial in some way. Um, and I've just had um, the most amazing few years meeting so many different people um, around the world in different places, interacting with different animals, things that I never thought I would do. Um, and um, I love it. It's just for me, um, being able to have that influence and that change um, is phenomenal.
0: Once you first started getting those first few speaking gigs, how did you kind of keep up the momentum? In what way do you mean? Did did you like, is it something that you, you chased from, you know, maybe you realized that you really enjoyed doing these speaking yeah. gigs and then you chased it more or was it all very kind of organic?
1: So um, it, actually, I think it's been more organic. So for me, I've never really, um, I don't think I've ever chased like doing the speaking gigs um, and I've just found that, Um, it was more, uh, invitation. So, um, I gave one and then, um, due to social media posts and things like that, someone else invites you or, um, someone else invites you. So even now I don't particularly go in terms of, um, trying to find gigs to speak at. Um, but I'm, um, like I say, I'm honored and privileged that, um, people, um, invite you or request that, um, ask you to come and do things. And so, um, I love receiving the invites and um it's um, I'm not the best at <laughs> keeping up with emails and uh, communicating back on emails but uh, so there are people out there who sometimes try and it's amazing that they'll keep messaging back and eventually hopefully manage to make it work um so yeah I think um rather than trying to chase that for me it's almost a passion and the um the enjoyment I get from the behaviour and training and uh, understanding behaviour and learning um, behaviour and the environment, and the interactions and all the things that we do. Um, for me, I'm just passionate about that. And um, when I think you're passionate about it and you end up doing so much of it and putting the effort and energy in, people see that and you end up um, getting invited or getting different gigs and things like that. So um, I think, yeah, really focus on... Um, behavior and training and helping animals and the people and the other stuff just happens
0: so for people that don't know what is the bucket game and how did you end up coming up with that
1: so um the bucket game is a um so it's essentially uh, we never really had a name and um when we had Cain um or the, shep- the shepherd that i talked about earlier um he used to have to be muzzled uh, at the vets. And also he'd like flip out on his back, um, growling if he had a muzzle and trying to scratch it off. Um, and so early on, um, he, um, like having to teach him to have his nails trimmed or have a vaccination. Um, I started doing lots of training with him and, um, kind of, I remember doing things like had treats and, um, he'd be so focused on the treats that, um, it's hard to do anything else. And so I was teaching him to, um, sort of offer another behavior around food. And then just working through, I remember putting the food on the floor. So when I put the food on the floor, he kind of just, um, learned to leave the food alone. And if he did another behavior, then food would uh, come to him. And, um, through that exercise, I remember it was in the garden, Working on some nail clipping type behaviors, and I put the food on the floor, um, and then I was doing that, and I, um, I started noticing he would look towards the food, and so I sort of thought, let me play with this idea that um, when he looks towards the food, that would be a signal um, of okay, I'm going to try, I'm going to touch your paw at that moment, and if he looked away from the food, then I would kind of take. Um, what I was doing and stop um, doing that. So I, I stopped touching his foot, I stopped touching his ear, whatever I was working on. And um, so the kind of the idea of, um, and there's also Dr. Susan Friedman's influence actually as well. So I remember going to one of her talks and um, she talks about the idea of empowering the learner looking at uh, behavior functionally and um, in terms of um, really working with the learner and having a conversation as opposed to just doing things to them. And so I was really playing with these ideas of, okay, so how can I use this in practice? And um, just started using sort of head towards the food as a start signal, head um, away from the food as you stop doing something. And very quickly I noticed I would do a nail uh, clip and then I'd wait. And when he was ready, he'd look towards the food and then I'd start doing things with him. And it meant also I didn't have a dog who kept looking around at my hands when I was doing his back feet or touching his back feet um, and trying to sniff and eat stuff at my hands. So I could use both my hands to, um, to clip his nails or groom him or do whatever I was doing. And so I kind of started using those principles um, when I was working with um, lots of different situations and husbandry behaviors, day-to-day care behaviors with dogs and other animals. and. Um, I remember going into I used to just use like a a bowl, food bowl, um or a pot of um like a little container of food. And if we taught the dog to show calm behaviors around the food at the beginning, um then you wouldn't have to worry about them jumping in the pot, etc. So um I was teaching a workshop in um LA and um we used um like i just used to do little containers and we went to target uh before the workshop to buy some stuff and there were these little metal buckets that look cute um and i thought oh i'll buy these and i can use them in the workshop and then i used to travel with them and teach with using the buckets and essentially um i was teaching with uh sarah fisher at tilly farm and again sarah's an amazing uh sort of human being and also teacher and um when we talk the game, um, just this idea of using the food and, um, the bucket or the container as a target, um, and the dog would look towards it and that could be a yes, no signal. Um, Sarah's like what's that bucket game thing that we played at the workshop it's phenomenal I'm going to use it and then she had lots of success with it as well when um, she was working with this dog at Battersea Dogs Home who was actually potentially going to be uh, euthanized and um, really hard to get into his kennel and she just started playing it from outside the kennel um, and had lots of um, lots and lots of success um, and she kind of tweeted about it and um, sort of posted on or uh, posted on Facebook or social media and people were sort of asking what's this bucket game what's this bucket game and um, I hadn't really given it a label. So then it kind of got its name, the bucket game. Um, so essentially, the bucket game is um, a way of having a conversation. And also, I find it's a great way of removing poison cues, um, because if, uh, often in a situation you ask a dog to sit or lie down or stand um, or wait. And then someone will try and inject them or clip their nails. And so within a given context, the dog hears the word sit or lie down or wait. And suddenly that's a cue that potentially there's a punisher in the environment. And so with the bucket game, I find that um, also when we're teaching the dog how to behave around food, Um, typically, um, when I started training it, we used to have food presented towards the dog. If the dog went towards the food, remove the food away or, um, sort of put your hand over it and using a lot of negative punishment. Um, and even as positive reinforcement trainers, we kind of look at that as okay, but re-questioning all of that. So with the bucket game, what we do is essentially the first step is, um, to teach the dog using, um, as much positive reinforcement as possible, minimizing uh, negative punishment, um, how to just be calm around food, food delivery, um, and a container. Um, um, we use small buckets um, because they're sort of kind of different to what the dog would see in everyday life. Um, and essentially, um, there's a bucket of food. It appears from a higher a high, a height where the dog isn't likely to jump. As soon as they orient towards it, we reinforce that behavior. And we don't ask for a sit down or a stand. The dog can... Um, be in any of those positions which are most comfortable to them. So as the training goes on and the dog gets older, um, or if the dog wakes up and has a sore leg, then they don't have to be in a sit to play the game. They can do it in a sit down or a stand, whatever's most comfortable. Um, so,
0: how can you how can you be sh- make sure that you're working with positive reinforcement and not the negative punishment, which you want to avoid? Because obviously, like, with the game, just to kind of break this down for people that don't understand it, so if the dog kind of meets criteria right, so say that you touch the pool and the dog's completely fine with that, then they get rewarded. If you touch the pool and they kind of um, pull back or show any kind of resistance, then you move away, right?
1: Yeah, so um, later on in the game, when, um, if we go to do something and the dog either pulls away or stiffens their body or turns away from orienting towards the target, we just stop what we're doing for a second and then respond to what the dog just, um, did in terms of potentially reducing our criteria. So rather than touching the leg or clipping the nail, we might um, go towards support and reinforce, um, sort of 30 centimeters from the paw and then do our next approximation at 25 centimeters and at 15 and 10 and eventually go back to where we can just touch the paw um, or pick the paw up and then build it up to a whole clip. But even before that, so even before we get to the handling aspect of it, just teaching a dog to um, calmly in a relaxed body posture um, while maintaining relaxed breathing to focus on the food being there and a visual target And doing that, uh, minimizing negative punishment and sort of kind of pulling the food away is really good because the clients use a high rate of reinforcement. You're learning how to set the dog up for success. um, And also you're presenting the food, um, essentially just a target um, and the dog is getting paid for looking at that. And there's such a high rate of reinforcement that you're creating um, great feelings and associations with the bucket and the situation. And, if if you go start going down a little bit closer to the floor with the bucket and the food, and if the dog goes towards it, rather than pulling the bucket away and saying, oops, that's a mistake. We can essentially just um, say to um, take the bucket back up again, where the dog had success previously. And because you've established bucket high up as a um, cue for access to reinforcement, rather than pulling the bucket away and kind of punishing that behavior, you're just re a previously successful approximation. And then you can go back, um, sort of um, reduce the height of the bucket and things like that. And you're maximizing positive reinforcement. You don't have to say no to the dog um, or say, oops, you lost the opportunity to get a treat because um, because you stuck your head in the bucket. Um, and we'll even sometimes the dog's head goes, ends up in the bucket, we'll still pay them I don't just pay them a few steps away from the bucket as a reset and then start a game, but just set them up for success the next time.
0: Right. I guess that's where the skill of the trainer comes in, right? Like if the dog's continually um, flinching or moving away, then you are going to start working with negative punishment. So you need to reduce your criteria and ask for less so that you get back into that positive reinforcement realm. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so essentially, um, if you're, I suppose you're probably looking at more negative reinforcement in terms of if you're, the dog's flinching and um, they're doing things and um, they're learning that they can escape uh, something they're finding aversive um, through that, uh, potentially um, the dog's kind of, that um, you're kind of removing an aversive in the environment. And so if you start seeing that, you're kind of reducing a criteria. And the goal is always to have your approximation small enough that you're really not, it's something, something the dog doesn't want to, um, move away from or get away from. And if they do. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, if they do, if at any point you, you essentially set up a, um, a contingency, which doesn't work for the, that, um, for that dog or that learner, um, they can still access an outcome, um, by they've learned I can have the human hand move away just by turning my head away from the bucket.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, sure. So what's the advantage of, say, the bucket game over like a more traditional, uh, counter conditioning approach?
1: So I find, um, the bucket game really starts focusing on looking at what is your learner doing and how do you respond accordingly? Whereas a lot of the uh, sort of classical um, counter conditioning or counter conditioning approaches are, um, I don't know, you you bring out some nail clippers, you do this and you present lots of treats. So you do this, you present lots of treats. And essentially it's not, um, you're not looking, it's, I find it less empowering because um, essentially for the individual, um they're not really having a say in what's going on in that situation. And you're not really queuing off, um, their behavior as, um, and what they're doing as how you do your, what you do for your next approximation. So here you're really focusing on what's the dog doing and, um, how does that give you information as to where you go to next? Uh, whether you reduce your criteria or you increase your criteria, you're not just doing this following a recipe sheet saying step one, do this, step two, do this. You're always only changing or adjusting what you do based on what the individual's doing. So, so I find that it's a great way of having a conversation. And for a lot of caregivers who may not be really passionate about this or um, understand the idea of having a conversation, they may not understand what all these little um, body language changes, these behavior changes mean, it's quite obvious for them to look for a dog who's either looking at the bucket or not looking at the bucket. And, um, even if they're not interested in having a conversation with their dog, um, lots of caregivers in puppy class or dog training class, if you say we're going to teach your dog, you know, um, to have a bucket of food right in front of them and the dog's calmly going to stand there and look at it without jumping into it they're like yep yeah, I want to teach my dog that and then every week to progress the game, we're like okay so this time we put the bucket down when the dog looks we're going to make it a bit harder by you're going to do some ear touches or you're going to do some paw touches and if your dog looks away you stop doing that and almost we kind of sneak the husbandry training in there and teaching them how to be able to clip a lead or harness on without having to um, hold the dog down uh, but the clients almost essentially they start off by going oh I just love this because look it's a great trick. I can have a whole bunch of food on the floor, and the dog doesn't jump into there. And it's a real life skill that's helpful when they're having their dinner or when the child's eating some food and the dogs uh, b- uh, by them. So it, it works, kind of motivating the client to want to do an exercise because a lot of times you say, "Let's work on teaching your dog to be comfortably and groomed or being handled." A lot of clients because they don't necessarily read body language that well, have never been taught to read body language that well. They're like, "Oh yeah, my dog's fine. He loves being touched. It's okay. Look, I can touch his ear." Um, whereas when you teach it in this way, step by step they really start learning to have this conversation and go oh look my dog looked away that means he wanted me to stop and then they start going oh I didn't realize when his tail changes like that his ears change like that and suddenly they start being able to see a lot more of their dog's behavior
0: yeah, that's always struck me as the advantage for the bucket game or anything where you're kind of using differential reinforcement, because you you kind of have like a binary choice, right? Like the the um, client that maybe isn't experienced with body language can just focus on the one behavior, like you said, you know, is the dog looking at the bucket or not? Whereas maybe with the uh, more traditional counter conditioning approaches, the the person that's training the dog has to have a uh, more experienced knowledge of. Um, the dog's behaviour so that they're setting criteria
1: accordingly is that does that kind of sum it up? yeah, I think um in terms of like I find that like more traditionally almost that point of um control or choice isn't there for the dog, so um a lot of times we kind of go with what we think is gonna work rather than really watching the dog's behavior and using that as the point of data or the point of reference information as to how we're gonna move forward or uh, move back slightly. As to what the dog's doing. Um, and so, um, I find that definitely the advantage of the bucket game is you, the people really start to watch what the dog's doing and then decide what to do next based on that information.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious about kind of some of the language you use, like choice, because it seems to me if you're counter conditioning the proper, you know, you're, you're kind of conditioning the kind of, um, traditional way, but you're doing that like properly, kind of in inverted commas, like, um where you're setting the criteria based on you know how is my dog responding then you are listening to the dog's um body language and i'm curious with the the bucket game stuff you know you use a lot of language like choice and sometimes that kind of like mystifies it for me anyway because i i always think of it in the kind of behaviorism language where and this is a question you know is it more is it like the dog's making a choice or is it just differential you know using differential reinforcement to counter condition the dog much like kind of um a lot of people do with reactivity where we might teach the dog hey look at me uh, around other dogs you know the the behavior is basically a vehicle to counter condition the dog
1: so um yeah, so more technically, I think we're allowing for um, a number of contingencies to be available, and we're reinforcing uh, behavior. So behavior is essentially what happens is um, going to be true to the reinforcement history and what reinforcements available in the environment, and so the animals that behavior is going to go uh, in that direction. Um, and so when we talk about kind of the idea of choice um, in that moment, I'm not kind of saying um, the animals kind of sitting there and going, "What am I going to do?" Um, and choosing it in that way, but. Particularly Potentially, we're allowing for access to two different contingencies. So, a dog who um, is in front of me here um, can access um, avoidance or escape, um, or they can um, they can kind of go, "Okay, I'm going to um, do this and access uh, positive reinforcers." And essentially, we want to try and uh, maintain criteria and set the criteria so we're not really um, setting the dog up to need to um, access any kind of escape or uh, anything like that. But when we teach it right from the beginning, we can also teach it as a cue. So um, they start to be able to learn that their behavior. So I do X or I do Y. So that essentially, my hand goes towards the nail clippers. Anytime the dog looks towards my hand, as opposed to the bucket, um, the nail clippers end up, um, back on the floor away from the dog and my hand moves away from them. And so essentially the dog can access two different options. Whereas traditionally I find that a lot of times when people are thinking about using a counter conditioning approach, um, it's almost like, okay, take the do- um, bring the do- dogs in front of you or here. You're going to take the nail clippers. You're going to move them towards the dog. You to give the dog a treat and you're going to keep repeating that until you see, um, that the dog is showing a positive conditional emotional response or they are seeing some kind of change um, and again a lot of times it's talking more of about a Pavlovian approach as opposed to an operant approach and if we're using a good operant approach um, any, any good operant approach essentially is a conversation um, because um, you're looking at the behavior that's happening and adjusting what you do in terms of your criteria based on the individual in front of you. And um, the whole field of sort of behavior behavior analysis is about studying the individual organism rather than um, sort of just a group or uh, a labeling an animal and studying them in that way. And so if you are doing good training... Um, essentially you should be adjusting your criteria based on the individual watching that behavior. And uh, But a lot of times we find that that doesn't happen, and um, often we poison situations. So we ask a dog to give their paw, um, and the dog doesn't give their paw. And because we've trained it using treats, a lot of times people are like, they re-cue, uh, give me a paw. But essentially when the dog didn't lift their paw up the first time you cued it, um, potentially um, the function of that behavior was to avoid um whatever that was so wipe, having the uh, foot wiped or being able to keep that foot away from a certain situation and it was an avoidance behavior but, but, but if you keep recueing it a trainer might think well i'm using treats i'm using a clicker so i'm using positive reinforcement when the dog does it click treat but potentially um the dog's going to learn that actually um if i if i just keep my foot still rather than lift it up it didn't gain that outcome. It didn't get that function of being able to escape or avoid that situation. And so you then start seeing more growling or you start seeing more lip licking and ears back and other behaviors and you see an escalation. And so I think, um, you're right in terms of if you're doing good training, then essentially um, I think it should always be you're playing the bucket game um, or those principles all the time in real life with whatever you're doing because you're always watching the learner and responding and changing your criteria based on that individual learner.
0: Yeah, it completely strikes me as like a, a coaching tool for people because and getting them to do the right thing. Because like you said, you know, how many times have we seen people do that kind of traditional approach and not pay any attention to what the dog's actually doing? They're just looking for trying to build the positive emotional response, but they're not actually looking at the dog's behavior. So they're not paying attention to whether the dog's pulling away or whatever. And the dog is, you know, it's very obvious to people when you put it in terms of like aggression right like it's really obvious is the dog reacting you know let's keep it let's keep the dog under threshold when we're going through that counter conditioning protocol but I think that it gets really easily overlooked in the husbandry stuff where people are just ignoring the fact that the dog's pulling away and so something like the bucket game is a really cool resource because it gets them you know noticing the dog's behavior and responding accordingly whereas with the traditional counter-conditioning approach it should be done that way but so often it's not right
1: yeah definitely um like i think like we say there's um depends on how you've learned it what we've done whether we're watching whether we're taking more of a pavlovian approach or whether we're taking more of an operant approach because again there you're looking at either stimulus response you're looking at um driving behavior for consequences depending on what approach you're taking and what model you're working on um and so i think Again, most of the time when I'm working, I now focus more on an operant approach, kind of think about um, Skinner in the driver's seat and Pavlov in the passenger seat. Um, and that Pavlovian effect is happening, but um, I'm focusing more on an operant approach because I find that if we're looking at an operant approach um, – we're looking at behavior as the point of reference and adjusting things, consequences driving that behavior, and the individuals operating on their environment. So essentially, it's more empowering. They've got control over the environment. Their behavior produces outcomes. And those outcomes shape that behavior. Whereas when we're talking more about, um, sort of Pavlovian, um, counter conditioning or, um, sort of Pavlovian, uh, sort of ca- uh, classical conditioning, um, then essentially it's more about stimulus response. And we're talking more reflexive, um, behaviors as opposed to, um, more operant, uh, more voluntary behaviors as well. So I think there's a huge, misunderstanding and I think there's lots of models where people are taught um, if you see a dog um, re, uh, re, like people use like we're reacting uh, but essentially we're reacting all the time to stimuli around us um, but if you see a dog barking and lunging um, at another dog then um, every time you see a dog just throw food down or produce lots of food um, and essentially but you're not really um, watching the dog's behavior and producing uh, consequences to shape certain responses, you're kind of just producing food every time you see a dog. And whereas if you're setting it up more operantly, um, you're kind of saying, OK, so at this distance, you're looking at a dog, the dog does X, Y or Z, and you're looking for relaxed body language, you're looking for muscle relaxation, you're looking for sniffing towards the other dog, whatever it is that you're looking for. And then you produce an outcome based on that. I think, again, it's much more um, empowering and, um, it allows the individual to operate on their environment as opposed to um, I'm going to produce a dog at a distance and then just suddenly start feeding you and then I'm going to stop feeding you and the dog disappears. Whereas um, if we take more of a operant pro- approach and more of a bucket game approach, then essentially you can start to say, uh, teach the dog, uh, you signal, uh, give me a cue when you're ready for that dog to appear at a certain distance. Um, and then also um, the dog can provide another cue uh, where the other dog disappears appears um and so if we're talking more of a Pavlovian uh counter-conditioning approach we're not really talking about um the animal operating on their environment and so i suppose it depends on uh, what approach we're talking about and what how you apply those approaches
0: well i love that you brought this up as well because i'm a proper fanboy convert you know like uh i i do a lot of um the bucket game style stuff where the dog has um you know we're working in that kind of operant um way. I know I describe it a little bit differently. I'm sorry. That's just my language. Um, but whether, you know, whether dog has the ability to, to basically, we're well, paying attention to the dog's behavior. That's what it is on, on the basic level. And, and where you have that, where you play games like the bucket game. Now, I'm curious about your thoughts on this because I've done it both ways and I've, I've done my best to do it both ways yeah. as well as possible, right? So I've done the traditional approach. I've done, um, bucket game and similar kind of stuff. And I am convinced from doing it both ways that the bucket game is more efficient. I'm convinced I've just done it so many times. I feel like it produces, you get to that end point of the positive emotional response quicker. And I'm wondering if you have that, you've had that experience as well or not.
1: So i um... I would like to say yes, but I think um, sort of like having my science hat on as well, um, I think there's so many variables we can't control. So the idea of uh, essentially um, if that's what we're doing more of, we potentially have a higher reinforcement history of it, Then, therefore we're going to be better at teaching in that style or in that way. And so then potentially we're going to see much more improvement because of that as well. So I think there's lots of different explanations as to why, but um, if we are focusing on looking for certain behaviours, And then specifically reinforcing and setting up contingencies for reinforcement for those behaviors, then those behaviors are going to increase. And so potentially, yeah, we are going to see, I think, more efficient training and more efficient change in behavior uh, by taking that approach.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, because people can become very efficient. at. It's like anything, isn't it? You know, if you practice something, you're going to get better at it. Right? Like, there are people that, um, maybe they, they primarily train with luring, right? And they become very good at luring and maybe they don't do shaping. And so they would get a faster response with luring than they would with shaping, but it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Exactly. But I'm- exactly
1: i think like you say i think that's a great point in terms of um like you're depending on what reinforcement history you have for applying um good shaping or good lure um like shaping with prompts or without prompts and luring as a prompt in terms of how good at you are using luring um and so i think these are skills that we can um have good reinforcement histories in and become better at doing um but if essentially i always train um a shaping without prompts. I say, I'm not saying it's what I do, but as an example. And then you've got another trainer, like you said, who is very good and uses a lot of prompts. Then potentially we're going to have different reinforcement histories in using those techniques, and potentially we're going to get better results um, um, doing those techniques because of the reinforcement history we've had applying those things.
0: So, if we hypothetically, you know, we take identical trainers and we do either. I um, I have a technique. You're not going to put your chips on one side.
1: (laughs) Oh, definitely not. No. It is a great conversation. I think, again, there are going to be some people out there going, oh, my God, um, and it's controversial. But, again, uh, I definitely think um, there's such – religious dogmas in dog training Mm -hmm. which I think we need to move away from and um, you hear all these things like people saying um, oh you don't don't lure because um, luring doesn't teach the dog to think for themselves and it's it's like I don't really understand that concept because um, what's like how are you How are you thinking for the dog? You can't you can't access the dog's mind. The dog's always (laughs) people say, um, use free shaping, um, shaping without prompts, um, and the dog is thinking for themselves. What are they defining that thinking for themselves as? And um essentially for me, it's almost these things are information that's gonna allow the learner to succeed or um or not succeed. And um I I used to do it myself where I used to think, oh my god, I'm gonna shape without prompts, and you've got a dog who's throwing five hundred. Behaviors at you and maybe some barking and actually if you stop and take a step back and look at it you've got a learner who doesn't know how to access uh reinforcement and all this throwing behavior at you must be in terms of from an emotional point of view potentially they're feeling quite confused or uh frustrated and so i really think um that and i'm not saying that's what free uh, shaping without prompts is about by no means am i saying that if you watch a trainer do it uh, well and do it really well um, you'll find that you'll see, uh, you'll see a dog who doesn't offer 5,000 behaviours and they're, they're not barking and screaming and you see more relaxed body language so I'm not saying that uh, shaping without prompts um, is, um, is causes frustration, I'm not saying that all but what I'm saying is a lot of times we use that, we hear people say when we jump on the bandwagon and almost go, oh yeah we have to free shape everything and bad um, and we almost have these kind of things that if you free shape you're going to teach the dog to think for themselves or develop frustration tolerance and actually, we have no scientific evidence to show this and um, show that. And like Kay Lawrence, has a really great uh, uh, video uh, where she shows um, um, dogs doing a, uh, the same behavior. And one dog is um, being taught to do that behavior, the behavior uh, through um, sort of uh, free shaping or shaping without prompts. Um, another dog is uh, being lured. And another dog is following a target. Um, and um, when you get to a certain number of approximate um, a certain number of trials you really can't see which dog was lured or which dog was shaped without prompts or which dog was um targeted and all the dogs are showing sort of good fluency with that behavior and so i think um yeah a lot of times we we'd say these things but actually we really don't have much um good science behind saying them
0: one kind of epiphany moment for me, which I think I've heard you speak on before is you don't have to use, you don't have to use like one at a time. So for example, when I was, when I was coming, coming up and I was learning, I thought that, you know, basically before I did a training session, I had to make a decision, right? Like I'm going to shape this or I'm going to lure this. And actually now when I go to train a behavior, I might use like a mixture of techniques. I don't have to be really, um, Really kind of religious about no, I'm not going to give the dog any prompt now, or I'm not going to use any kind of lure because I've decided I'm just going to do shaping.
1: Exactly. No, exactly. It's not about us, it's about the learner and it's about arranging the environment to succeed for that learner. So when we go in and go, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, the question is why? Um, And if we're really working to improve the lives of the animals that we care for and um, the humans that we care for when we're selecting styles for them to learn from um, it's not about us and it's not about what we want to do it's about what works whether you believe in reinforcement or not that's how um, behavior operates on this planet and I think um, whether we believe in, I go, this is my belief, uh, this is my belief. Well, that's great if that's your belief, but we have to do what works. And um, like you said, I think it's really nice to hear that because when we're working with a learner in front of us, um, almost um, decided like given you a new trainer, you think, what's my training plan? What's my training plan? And sometimes as trainers become so fixed on having a 50-point plan, um, but actually the more I train, What I do is um, I go into a situation and what I'm doing is based on the individual in front of me and how they're behaving. So you can have five or six different um, ways that the training session is going to go. And I never know exactly where it's going to end up or go. um, And I can drive it to make it go more in the direction that I want it. But essentially, uh, whether I was going to, if I'm training something and it would be the perfect opportunity to stick a prompt in or to remove a prompt and it's going to help um, shape that behavior where you want it to go, then that's what we're going to do in that training session. So, yeah, really being less uh, fixated on I'm going to do this, but actually really going and going, how can I arrange the environment for my learners to succeed? And you may think, OK, I'm going to shape this. I'm going to target this. I'm going to do this. That's great. But be ready to change because um, the world never stands still and um, w- things are going to happen and something you may not have accounted for. I'm, I'm training Cody in my living room and I thought I'm going to arrange the environment for him to succeed and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But suddenly um, the sofa or the pillow um, in the room, the way it's positioned, um, allows me to suddenly just move the pillow and present a prompt, which means um, I can um, help that behavior go in the direction that I want with Less approximations, and I can reinforce the actual behaviour that I want, as opposed to all the little bits in between. Um, I'm just going to go with that if that's what I want to do. It depends on what your goal is, where you're trying to go, what the training journey is. So I suppose you need to understand those aspects of it.
0: You bring then, up you you bring up prompts, and that reminds me of something you said earlier um, about your German Shepherd Kane, and how um, when you would use a treat to try to countercondition him or try to kind of do any husbandry with him, you would become so obsessed with the treat that it kind of wasn't productive. How do you deal with that in the bucket game where you're using food as part of the experience? You know, you have food in the bucket.
1: Oh, it's really easy, just feed the dog. Um, Now, in terms (laughs) of like, um, and I say that a little bit flippantly, but actually it is. Um, We did this last week with a Malinois Malinois puppy um, and um, the dog, like you've got a dog in front of you and they're grabbing your hands or they're, they're, um, they're jumping at the treat bag. The moment mm-hmm. you start consistently and predictably taking a treat and just placing it on the floor um, mm-hmm. or in front of the dog in, in a certain position and you do that 10-15 times I'll um, put money on it that in your 15th trial or your 20th trial you have a dog whose head is not at your treat pouch but where you're placing that treat um, and so um, essentially um, with the bucket if you've got a dog and you're bringing it out the more you try and teach the dog self-control and all these weird and wonderful things that people talk about and kind of thinking, how's the dog going to learn this construct of self-control if we are not going to break it down into actual behaviors that we're teaching. Um, Then we essentially, we start reinforcing and placing behaviors on the um, extinction um, and like causing more frustration. um, And we get these dogs who start becoming people like he's obsessed over food or he can't focus. It's not that he can't focus. That's the behavior that we've reinforced. And uh, so, You do have a dog who is um, labelled as obsessive over food. Um, actually, if you do just get a whole bunch of food, um, one after the other consistently, just take, in, take the treat, place it on the floor. Don't let go on to place it on the floor, even if the dog is following it with their mouth. And do that, like I said, 15, 20 times. A lot of times what you'll find is by the time you get to the 15 for 20 piece of food, the dog's in a sit or a down um, and their head is away waiting for the next piece of food to arrive on the floor and you've taught the dog to move away from food or just to keep slightly further back or slightly calm down around food and having that predictability um, suddenly changes a lot of that behavior as well so I think rather than trying to teach self-control or teach the dog to leave um, do that and um, you'll see very quick um, and um, results and less frustration as well
0: yeah that's a great tip to get started because I think oftentimes those behaviors are frustration based and they're usually a sign that your rate of reinforcement isn't high enough aren't they? Yes,
1: yeah, so again, we look at frustration as um, appearing from a, a contingency where um or lack of um sort of reinforcement and you're withholding reinforcement uh, where potentially a behavior has had reinforcement um and you go into an extinction um situation and um uh, you may get an extinction burst and we label that as um that we see those behaviors occur. And we also label that as um, sort of either the dog's experience frustration or um, we associate that when the dog's going to feel uh, frustration. So um, potentially um, when I see that, what that's telling me is um, we're withholding reinforcement for behaviors that previously had reinforcement. And um, when you withhold reinforcement, you're not really shaping um, or telling the dog what you where you want that behavior to go. Um, and so a lot of times when people withhold reinforcement, that doesn't give the learner information as to what to do next. And through that extinction burst, you end up getting animals who are just, um, you get ver- operant variability, you get lots of different, um, You get the behaviors might get more intense, um, you might start seeing the behavior vary slightly, and often out of that people see something they like and they reinforce that, and then almost you start riding that extinction burst and reinforcing behaviors through that. So if you start ever seeing that, just go back to something that you that gives the learner consistent information as to what behavior works and then start shaping um from that point without leaving the learner cold of information
0: yeah that's an important point as well because i can hear someone in my head saying you know um hey Shira, i can't just feed my dog constantly you know how is that how is that going to get me to where i want to be but at some point You start to increase criteria, right? Like your rate of of reinforcement has to be very high in the beginning, um, but then you're going to eventually move to adding in duration slowly at a rate that the
1: learner can handle, right? Definitely. And so, when we again, when we talk about the rate of reinforcement, it's not necessarily a rate that's uncontingent. And so, um, that we've arranged in the antecedent environment for that learner to be able to behave in a way where we can reinforce that behavior. So when we mention rate, we want to discriminate there. It's not just about having a high rate of food delivery, but it's actually arranging the environment so that um, the behaviors that we want to occur are occurring.
0: Ah, okay. That's a really important differentiation. I guess my original point was we do a lot of bucket game style stuff with our little dog, Louis. And for example, if we were to use like sausage, I always say, I always say you could hit him over the head with a hammer, (laughs) right? Like he, he would just stay there and be completely, um, just so focused on the sausage. And for those kind of dogs, I guess you're looking at, you know, if you are getting that kind of like obsession with the food and not much, um, not much, uh, what would you call it? Like there's not much, um, experiencing of the actual training that's going on, then I guess you're looking at using a lower value reward. Is that right?
1: Yeah, definitely. So if uh, something you're using in the environment is promoting, um, uh, promoting one behavior, like, um, looking towards a piece of sausage and, um, essentially that's, um, um, kind of blocking, um, the other uh, information that's available, overshadowing the other information that's available. So, um, your hands moving towards the dog's ear. Um, that's that, that information, that stimulus isn't really available to that learner because, um, the sausage that you've placed in front of them is what's the most salient thing in that environment. Then potentially, if you want the dog to be learning that when the hand moves, then this behavior occurs and there's this outcome, then it's probably the hot dog or the sausage isn't really going to help teach that, um, teach what you're just trying to do. So you're always looking at how does that stimulus affect um, the behavior and um, the, um, how is the animal um, sort of perceiving other stimuli and learning other bits of information. And if, it, if that piece of food doesn't help, then change the food.
0: Well, Shirak, thanks so much for geeking out with me about the bucket game and sharing your kind of journey um, into dog training. Where can people find out more about you?
1: Uh, so they can go on, um, I recently started Instagram um, and posting on Instagram, so they can follow me on Instagram, um, which is Chirac Patel underscore 86, or they can go on my site which is domesticatedmanners.com um, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to have a chat with you and share some information and uh, thank you for also yeah doing these podcasts and making uh, sort of training and behavior accessible to so many people.
0: Well thanks so much shirak Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I think that that one's going to be particularly thought-provoking for people. So be sure to join us uh, for the discussion that happens after the podcast on the discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger, podcast discussion group, and there will be a thread there for this podcast. And I'm sure we will be having uh in-depth conversation about the ins and outs of uh, all of that husbandry training, the bucket game, um, Shirag's journey. I love his story. He's got such an awesome story. And you can, as always, grab the show notes for this episode just by going over to nickbenger.com slash hyphen patel. See ya.